Giant Penny, Episode 2. Chris Claremont, the best there is at what he does. Welcome to Giant Penny, Episode 2. Chris Claremont, the best there is at what he does. Chris Claremont's X-Men. And today we have uh, Mr. Hanzo the Razor, as we like to call him. Hello, hello. Our pal Jay. Hi, guys. And of course, Hector. Hi, guys. How are you? My name is Jason, or Doot, if you prefer. We're talking about Claremont's X-Men. We're not just talking about Claremont's X-Men. One of us, of us four, has written a book and it is not me, and it is not Hector. And the first audience member to figure out which one did write it wins quite a prize. We've already eliminated two of your choices. You have two lifelines left. And then, Jason, are we correct? It came out within the past week. I've already purchased my copy and combed over it, but uh, it oh, launched okay. pretty recently. Why don't you tell us the name of your book? Okay, the name of the book is The Best There Is at What He Does, colon, Examining Chris Claremont's X-Men. Oh, I wasn't pronouncing the colon when I read my book, but we should pronounce it. I got it. Well, if you're reading the book out loud, are you, are you still recording the audio book for me? Oh, because that's going to be amazing. That actually would, I would like that. I think we need to acknowledge up front that of the four of us, one of us is much more hugely, probably one of the world's experts on Chris Claremont's X-Men run. The rest of us are kind of running to keep up here in this discussion. Ironically, though, I'm the yeah. one who wrote the book, even though... Hector is the one who's the big Claremont fan. Uh, that's, you know, I think you're a bigger Claremont fan. Okay. Yeah, but Hector is a Chris Claremont fan. My mistake. I, I feel self-conscious talking about my own book. Well, okay. Well, let's but. start it off then. So okay. the best there is at what he does, examining Chris Claremont's X-Men. Is that a yeah. book? You, see, you didn't say colon. You're supposed to say colon. <laughs> right. Examining <laughs> Chris Claremont's colon. Yes, <laughs> there is, and what he does. <laughs> There's some doctor out there who has written that book. <laughs> that's that's so, a sequel. I guess if you're a younger comic book fan, Chris Claremont's X Men isn't probably something you're that's overly celebrated today. But uh, when you consider kind of the commercial success that that run enjoyed, and how how much of a cornerstone of the market it was for Marvel, the direct market. Uh, how many fans it brought in in the 80s and 90s. It really uh, should be a run that's as celebrated, uh, if only for its commercial success and influence as, you know, books like Watchmen or Fantastic Four, things like that. It was it was really like the definitive book of its era. And Jason Powell has recently written an issue-by-issue issue recounting of Chris Claremont's entire run. And how many issues was that, Jason? Of Uncanny, he wrote from 94 to 279. So that was 186 issues. 186 issues, which is really kind of a feat. Now, that, that doesn't happen you very know, much anymore. I mean, do you guys think, like, no. quantitatively speaking, does, is there any run comparable in terms of just its significance to a property, the duration, the number of issues and years? I mean, what would be like the Mount Rushmore of runs? Because this one's got to be like George Washington or something. <laughs> well, I think Peter David on Hulk, right? Peter yeah. David wrote. That's a pretty yeah. long one. The oh, only like ones that can spring to mind that are like uh, longer runs by the same creative people are, are Dave Simcerebus and Eric Larson, Savage Dragon. But those were never the sales juggernauts yeah. that Uncanny X-Men was. And neither was actually Peter David's Hulk. That wasn't really the kind of sales juggernaut. I mean, Uncanny X-Men is like... You know, I mean, it's it's like we're talking Beatles popularity within the comic book world for like two decades plus. 
I think arguably it's just, it's up there with like Stan and Jack's fantastic four in terms of just length and significance. And it, we made it five minutes before James mentioned Savage dragon, just let the record reflect it. Right. And I haven't <laughs> five, five minutes too long before. if you ask me, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it, I guess it's, it's worth noting that, um, Cerebus by Dave Sim and Savage dragon by Eric Larson are uh, creator owned. So of course they could go as long as they wanted to, uh, in Claremont's case, it was a company owned, uh, comic. So it's, it's, I think at this point, it's probably never going to happen again. I think at this point, the companies actually prefer there to be Rotati, you know, yeah, 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 turnover. Well, you know, I the, also, the, the, the way that it was done in conjunction with kind of a reboot of the title, the all new X-Men, but, but mm-hmm. yet Claremont wasn't really behind that. It wasn't like Claremont was like, I want to do this all new team. But they, they launched it and then just went, here you go, Claremont. And then he launched it for like 17 years. That's kind of odd. Well, you know, one, one thing yeah, that was interesting that Jason just said was he doesn't think that the, the comic book industry would want to run that. But the thing was, Uncanny X-Men was like by far like the number one seller over that time period. I think that Marvel Comics or DC Comics would love to have a book that's always the number one book, that the writer is completely happy being on that book. It can sell with any artist. I mean, there really isn't a, a comparable title these days you know it, it, I, I actually think that marvel would love to be in that situation again with any of its titles clearly dc should because they don't have anything comparable right Hector? <laughs> <laughs> i mean you might be right I, I i i thought i remembered someone saying in an interview that the, the companies kind of prefer they worry about it being all about the creator then so that then when the creator does decide to leave that there's potentially a huge sales drop well, let me ask you this jason i want to ask and you other guys too but i want to hear from jason as the scholar among us <laughs> um and for those listening that aren't familiar we're talking the claremont run is what roughly seven ninety seventy five to 19 is it 91 91 yeah right. okay i mean here's one theme that you'll you'll see everyone is because that's so seminal and long, everyone encountered it in a different way. They either came along and he'd been writing it for years. They came along after and they came overwhelmed. Uh, I think the foreword to your book, Jason, talks about it, how it's the water that we were swimming in and didn't even realize it. For me, <laughs> um, I'm reminded, like, did you guys watch Between Two Ferns when Hillary Clinton went on it two weeks ago? And Galifianakis said to her, she said she was going to be the first woman president. And he said... Yes, and to a whole generation, you're going to be the first white president. And my kids have grown up and they've never known anybody but Obama. And the same thing was true of Claremont. When I was reading comics, no one could remember anything but years of Claremont. So I would ask you, Jason, you're a little younger than me, though not much. And all I guess I'm the oldest. But can you describe how you encountered, like, what year? How did you find it? How did you work your way backwards and get them all read? Like, where was it at when you first discovered what he was doing? Yeah, it was it was very far along actually. It was um, it was 1988, so he was only three years from the end. Not that he knew it that then. I think he had planned to. I think he said in an interview that he would have stayed writing it until he dropped if there hadn't been uh, editorial uh, headbutting. Uh, it was all Jim Lee's fault. It was Jim Lee's fault and Bob Harris <laughs> and Bob Harris. Um, but in '88, that was he was still kind of going strong, and um, it was. It was also an era when it was very, very far from kind of the platonic ideal of X-Men. If you think of it as the the mutants in the mansion, Xavier as the mentor figure. Uh, this is when they were in Australia in the desert in the outback. Membership was in Wolverine and Storm were there, although Storm was kind of different from, again, what 
sort of the classic storm that we think of from the 70s and 80s. No Nightcrawler, no Kitty Pride, no Cyclops, no Professor X. Who was uh, the run? Did you go out and say, I just have to get my hands on the whole run? Or did you, was it years before you went back and bought trades? Or um, It was, well, at the same time, they were doing uh, Classic X-Men, which was reprinting what was considered at that time classic it was only about 10 years old it was 1978 material See, I, I had that same analog with spider-man but it was marvel tales uh yeah, I, yeah. I remember the new and then i went back and read marvel tales yeah so you have them kind of going concurrently and i think as a 10 year old it was i don't think my brain quite understood that the classic ones were reprints like it was just stuff yeah. that took place in the past but not necessarily published in the past i like when i collected marvel tales as a kid as jason i didn't realize they were reprints i thought they were just yeah, Spider Man comics. It didn't I still really remember even... the first the first moment for me. It was the Marvel Tales with the Mind Worm in it. I think it was like a seventy four issue published in like eighty one of Marvel Tales, and I was reading them like you, James. And then this guy's older brother had a comic book collection, and I went to his house, and there was like the same issue laying there, and it was like it was like the end of like the Sixth Sense or something. I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this comic book I just saw it on the newsstand. It was like a giant trick that Marvel had played on me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't. It's not like they made it really, really obvious in the in the comic itself. Although it did say in tiny print, originally presented, but right, yeah, yeah. Kid, you not quite enough. Yeah, when you're a kid. So it's but something in my brain recognized that oh, this classic stuff is earlier and this outback stuff is now and a lot of things have happened in between and it kind of i think this story is probably true for a lot of x-men fans there's so many continuity references and it's it's so dense with characters and references to other characters and things that have happened before and footnotes which i don't know that that happens anymore in marvel comics but the no, footnotes very rarely they do i mean sometimes <laughs> In the letter space, there is, please go check these uh, trades and that, that, but not like... Uh, they don't go, do the asterisks Go anymore. check X-Men 91, True Believer. No, I didn't like that anymore. The True Believer, yeah. Only, only Smile and Stan could do those right <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, those footnotes that actually had kind of personality. Like, yeah. if you don't believe us, check out here. Where it oh, happened. man, Stan was the master of that. His, his were the best. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it really, I think, and again, this is probably uh, a tale that could be told by any X-Men fan. It kind of you kind of become obsessed with tracking that stuff down and finding out everything that happened in between. And the more, you, of course, every issue you pick up has more footnotes and more references and more characters. <laughs> the first two ones that I picked up had virtually no characters in common. It was uh, an, an issue of X-Men that had, at the time they were new, it was Psylocke and Longshot and Rogue and uh, Dazzler. And then the classic X-Men issue, of course, was the classic you know, Cyclops, the, the, the Claremont Byrne team. So there were no characters in common. And um, it, it, it was really, it was really kind of a mind trip. It was really something that made me say, "Well, how did it go from this to this?" They're both the X Men. It was like, uh, like when you'd see Voltron, and sometimes it would be the five cats, and then other times it would be like ten vehicles. Oh yeah. yeah. Or did you ever get in an argument with somebody that only knew the cats, and you were like, "Three <laughs> vehicles," and they'd be like, "No, it did not." That was yeah. I sometimes, actually don't even know what you're talking about with the vehicles. So. No, you only knew the cat version of Voltron. I've only seen the cat version. It yeah. was like a reboot of Voltron. It used to be like a Transformer ripoff. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but they at some time point in syndication they would just kind of run them. Today is a vehicle one, tomorrow is a cat one, and it was the same kind of thing. Like, what is the connection? They're both called Voltron. What is the connection? They're both called X Men. You guys kind of have a because you lived in the United States at that time. You guys have seen a lot more of what of eighties pop culture. I, I watched AFRTS now AFN, which was the military broadcast channel in Korea. Oh, yeah. So I, I saw Voltron reruns, but they were just kind of 
whatever. I guess they just really tended to favor cheaper, older programming. They didn't really pay for the new stuff. No, very the often. military had a problem with the vehicle one because it displayed Soviet technology or something. It was banned. <laughs> oh, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Sense. I mean, everyone does know Voltron is based on real science, so that's yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. I mean, it was uh, as a kid, you know, getting whatever twenty five cents a week allowance or whatever I was getting. It was definitely a slow process building up, reading it. It kind of you know, and there, and there were spinoffs. Of course, there was the Wolverine spinoff and the Excalibur, uh, in which Claremont wrote all of those, right? Claremont wrote Excalibur and Wolverine. Yeah, and my uh, entire sort of comics childhood because I drifted away uh, college. Claremont was writing X-Men long before and long after. So for my entire comics exposure, it was all Claremont. That included the miniseries, Excalibur, everything. It took me a while, again, because I, I was 10 when I started. And then maybe as I turned 11 or 12 and I was, oh, now I got to get the Wolverine. And now I got to get, and I buy old ones. And some of these old ones are six or seven years old, which, of course, when you're 12 is a lifetime. There it is. And, and start to realize, wait, these really, really old ones have the same writer's name as these brand new ones. You thought that must be common, <laughs> but it wasn't actually. <laughs> right, right, right. But at a certain point I realized kind of, and it was kind of sort of unfortunately and ironically, I guess, right as he started to uh, cut back and eventually just quit the comics entirely was when I kind of realized he was the reason I liked it. And then suddenly he was gone. It was like Burgess Meredith in Twilight Zone or something. No, but, but, was, but then he got replaced by Scott Lobdell and it was great. That's no, a good great. point. <laughs> It, was, it seemed that at that point, Claremont had been beaten at his own game. <laughs> By Eric Larson? Of course. Well, um, you know, so Hector, how did you discover Chris Claremont and the uh, Uncanny X-Men? I'm trying to think because uh, I mostly grew up reading Batman and Superman. But then around the 90s, I think it was the cartoon or maybe it's a little bit earlier. And I really like the X-Men. I really like the group. I really like the, the ethos, you know, the hate and fear thing. And then I checked the comics, and I, I remember the first one I read, it was, uh, I don't know, X-Men 50 or something, the, the second volume. And I couldn't start, I couldn't understand anything about it. I mean, I didn't know the characters, I didn't know what the hell was happening, and I was immediately hooked. I mean, I went back and read all I could find about them, and I became a fan. But I didn't actually read a Chris Claremont X-Men comic book until about uh, the year 2000. Wow. I mean, it was, uh, it was the, the, uh, when he came back to, to the titles after, I don't know what happened. I think it was, was it Extreme X Men? Re- Revolution. No, no, it was Revolution. before that. The, after that, he was kicked over to Extreme X Men. But uh, I, I read the second run. I have to say, I didn't like that much. <laughs> I, I also read uh, Dark Phoenix Saga. I didn't like that one either. I know it's, it's wow. like the, I know it's like the, the the most classic X-Men story ever, but I did not like it that much. But then I I started buying the essentials, you know, the big phone books, black and white. And that's when I started really loving Chris Claremont. I mean, I eventually ended up reading all the seven years on the, 17 years on the book, and I love very much all of it. But I I really started loving the X-Men after John Byrne left. That's uh, that's when I part wow, ways with lots of fandom. Yeah, I mean, I, I prefer the the second Deb Cockrum run. Uh, I love the Paul Smith run, then John Romita, and then when they go to Australia, I love the Australia period. I mean, if you, I, if you don't mind me asking, 
Well, what didn't you like about the John Byrne era? Because a lot of that's kind of a lot of the foundational stuff that set up the rest of the series. You know, the the time traveling stuff with Days of Future Past. I, l- I love I love Days of Future Past. That's, that's the only one I love. <laughs> but the Alpha Flight, you know, so they have the whole Canadian connection with Wendigo. Yeah. There was the uh, what was that one, Jason? It was like um, like Moira McTaggart's son or something was some sort of a weird yeah mutant X or Proteus. Proteus, yeah. yeah. Proteus. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that really. I, don't they kind of draw upon for the rest of Chris Claremont's time on? Yeah, the I, I know they are like the, the the foundational the foundation of everything X Men related, but I don't know they were like uh, like um, unconnected adventure. I mean they they have a fight with these uh, these villains and then they go to the next adventure. And I don't know. I mean maybe because I grew up reading modern comics, I was kind of bored by that. I know it's weird and all that, but I don't. And no, I never you really like what you like. I, I never really connected to that one. And I wanted more, more drama. That's uh, that's what uh, I eventually love about the X Men. All the drama, all the you know soap opera, all that stuff. And I think a lot of that was missing in the John Byrne run. What do you, Jason? It, this is I've never heard anybody say they didn't like the John Byrne run, even if they don't um, like John Byrne. Um, <laughs> after you've been you've been focusing on it as a whole, you wrote the book. Does he does he kind of stand out as kind of the the best of the the runs in terms of the artists that were paired with Claremont. You know, I I hate to say no because <laughs> most people would say yes. I, I know where Hector's coming from. I, I I although I love the Dark Phoenix saga, there's there's, there's more going on in Afterburn. I see both sides of it. Let's put it that way. Because with the Burn stuff, you had material that was it's very streamlined, and I think that was when Roger Stern was editing, and Stern and Burn were friends, and they had a, I think similar storytelling sensibilities, kind of a classicist sort of approach in, in the sense of those old saws about every issue being somebody's first and um you know every story should have a good beginning middle end and the superhero should triumph at the end and claremont's i think were not being steered by stern and burn his inclinations were kind of the opposite to do one long soap opera uh, a lot of pyrrhic victories and defeats if, as much as you had successes if um, you miss one claire's chris claremont issue by the next one you have no idea what the hell happened yeah, that was, good. that was good about that. <laughs> so burn, I think the burn run. There's a there's a, a kind of austerity or a clarity to it that I think makes it easy to approach now. Do you um do you actually know how that top book was written? Because like from John Burns' comments on his message board, it seems that um, he was almost a co-writer in a way. You know, like he like they kind of did a Marvel mm-hmm. method or something like that. But do you know if if Claremont wrote full script at that point or? I'm under to believe no, because there's that famous example of Colossus ripping up the tree stump. The tree stump incident? Right, the tree stump incident. And it was drawn Some one day. The death of a thousand cuts. <laughs> right, right. And uh, I was just wondering if he ever switched to, like once Byrne left, did he switch to full script at that point, or did he continue to work in the Marvel method? No, as I understand it, he um, the Marvel method was always the way he did it, submitting a plot. But as I understand it, and this was true even in the Byrne days, I believe the plots were extremely extensive virtually panel by panel breakdowns. I think, I think, uh, Byrne said that some of the plot, and this is just a plot synopsis, mind you, they would be like 17 pages long or something like that. Right. So it's from the um, Alan Moore school. Right. Right. But, but they weren't a script. They were, they didn't have dialogue in them or they might've had notions of what people might say, but. Chris always accepted input right from his artist. It's, it's, uh, it's the one thing I think is consistent and it's not a lot like, uh, other writers who always, you know, panel, you know, the, the full, the full script wrote, and, you know, Chris uh, always wanted to know what his 
artists who wanted to do with a book, and he had said that, that and that's really cool, right? Yeah, he uh, yeah he did an interview where he said that yeah he um, anytime a new artist was uh, coming onto the series, he would talk to them about what kind of things you're interested in drawing and uh, would try and incorporate that kind of things. He also has the famous, well, famous to me, I guess, because I've read every interview I could get my hands on the example of the, uh, the Frank Miller miniseries that he did, the Wolverine four part miniseries that Frank Miller illustrated that. Yeah. I came out of a conversation that they had in, in Claremont. I think the first issue submitted is normal, really dense 15 page plot. But by the time he got to the fourth issue, he trusted Miller enough that, it was like a, a, a two-minute phone call with Frank Miller, and then he just said, go. Yeah, submit. that's actually kind of an, a great example of him using his artist's uh, input because, as I understand it, uh, I think I read from like a Frank Miller interview that uh, Claremont approached him to do it. He wasn't interested because he didn't like Wolverine because he was just a psycho. So Claremont started tailoring Wolverine to Frank Miller's sensibilities with the ninjas, the dishonored Ronin aspect of Wolverine that ended up becoming a really – central part of the character. Frank Miller made Wolverine great. <laughs> let's let's just say it. Yeah, I believe this, it's that they, they were stuck in traffic together. They were going to a convention together. And as long as they were stuck in traffic, Claremont just used the time to persuade Miller to do Wolverine and said, and somehow the conversation came to, yeah, ninjas and martial arts. And what if, what if Wolverine is a failed samurai and, and the rest is comics history. You know, for our listeners that, you know, kind of vaguely interested, but just want to hear about some stories or some character developments. What, uh, what a, just somewhere out of your top five, what, what moments, what story elements, what plots just clicked with you and said, I love this, you know, what are the high points in terms of the, the that soap opera? You know, which ones, of- which ones were early on for you, which made you sort of fall in love with it? Not, not looking back, but at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't want to assume anything about uh, Hector's experience, but one of the things with the Dark Phoenix saga is that it really was building the nine issues are, that are collected in the trade paperback are the last nine issues of it. But it was kind of building for the 10 or 15 before that. And that was what was coming out from the classic X-Men reprints. Yeah. Uh, and I, didn't, I was still such a neophyte. I didn't know anything about the Dark Phoenix saga. I didn't know that this this reprint series was about to get into a legendary story. I was just picking them up off the rack. And so I was seeing it develop probably similar to how fans at the time were not, you know, with no expectations. And to see that build, uh, that, that slow development of, of the Jean Grey Phoenix thing, not knowing where it's going and just uh, one issue would have a good half of it would be devoted to Jean Grey, but then the next one, she wouldn't be even be in it. Uh, and then the next one, maybe there would be a three-page cutaway to her, and then and then it just builds and builds until it's all about that character, and it uh, it never kind of lets up. I'm pretty I amazing. At the time, I remember I was actually sort of reading comics, even though I was young. But people, when she, uh, I don't know if, she, if you call it eating a planet, but she destroyed a planet. <laughs> Everybody was like, "Can you believe this? She destroyed a planet." <laughs> we were thinking they're going to have to do something to her. You can't just do that. <laughs> And you were right. <laughs> um, Jim Shooter's vigilante justice. Yeah, I think we were thinking the same thing, Jim Shooter. We were like, she's she's gonna have to die or something. I think the Dark Phoenix is sort of rightly uh, uh, lauded. I really like the Australian stuff. There's um, uh, there's a there's a four part story. Uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with this because it's one of the more obscure little backwaters. Although later they did more with it. But the Genosha, the country of Genosha. Yeah, that's that's a pretty big thing, I think. Within yeah, it, later. It was the first four. It was it was a four part story, and it was the first the first appearance of Genosha. And it was a a nation in Africa that enslaved mutants, and it was a, a kind of 
in some ways, heavy-handed uh, apartheid metaphor. Although, then again, in some ways, not so heavy-handed because again, I read it when I was ten and uh, you know didn't know anything about didn't well, know anything about what the allegory. Right at that time, you supported apartheid, so it was <laughs> right. <laughs> but I was ten. Give me a break. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Eventually, I came. Around. Apartheid is massively popular to ten-year-olds, especially in the late eighties. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I came around one or two years ago, but um, <laughs> but it's also just a. It, it was a really cool, it, it's, it's very, I guess, dense, you would say, on, on many levels. There's a lot going on because it's also the prelude to the uh, Inferno crossover, which is kind of a maligned uh, crossover. But it's, it's kind of a cool uh, sequel to the Dark Phoenix saga. It involves another uh, Jean Grey going, or a Jean Grey duplicate who goes mad with power. There was this kind of interesting symmetry going on. I'm sure they planned it to some degree that the classic X-Men was coming into Dark Phoenix right as the current series was coming into Inferno, which drew heavily from it. Um, so yeah, again, reading them simultaneously was... That was a bit messy, crossover. I mean, it, was, yeah, it, 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 it had a lot of things. It had uh, Limbo, Demons, yes. Sinister, Sinister, and a lot of stuff that, uh, I don't know, I, I, don't, I, I don't really like it that much. I'm you sorry. Know, I was just about to bring that up, Hector, which is, you know, one of the kind of famous things about X-Men is that its continuity is really kind of confusing and nonsensical. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's, it's true or not, I don't know. I haven't read every issue of X-Men, I don't know. But, um, you know, I kind of think of that Madeline Pryor saga as being like, was that the genesis of the weird, confusing continuity? Because it really seems like a bizarre storyline. So you've got like Cyclops but, marries a clone of Jean Grey and has a kid and the kid goes to the future and becomes Cable, right? I mean, is, is, is the time traveling why X-Men's continuity is so... In, in Claremont's defense, Madeline Pryor, I don't think, was his fault. I mean, it was because uh, they needed Jean Grey back and Cyclops was married with a kid and, I don't know, he just left his wife and went back to the X-Men, to the to X-Factor and I mean, what, what, what are they going to do with, uh, with Madeline Pryor? I mean, she had to become a billion. And now, and she became a clone and all that stuff you said. Yeah, I mean, I like that stuff, but uh, I think it's not for everyone. The, the whole continuity thing uh, and the denseness of the continuity, I, I guess to answer your question about whether Madeline, I think Madeline Pryor or Cable are emblematic of it. I don't know that you could point to that storyline and say that's where it got too complicated. I think that's probably a different threshold for everyone, but... Well, do you think it was also the other, the other kind of threshold I, I, I kind of think of, because I at one point... Um, I, I stopped, but I'd been collecting the Marvel Masterworks of, of basically, you know, from Giant Size X-Men 1 on. And it kind of occurred to me as I was kind of going through it, I was like, you know what? You could really just read X-Men, the title by itself. If you had just read the title, you didn't need all these crossovers and stuff. You could just read the book and kind of understand what was going on, kind of like in the classic comic sense. And then there was like a crossover. Um, it was like something to do with like uh, the Morlocks underground. What was it called again? Yeah. And I kind of think of, you know, I think of that as like, uh, not that the stuff after it is bad at all, but if you wanted to keep things simple for yourself, uh, you could just stop right before the mutant massacre, I guess. And you'd have this kind of run of books where it's all condensed. It's all basically in one title. You don't have to start hunting around for tie-ins and crossovers and such. Maybe new Mut mutants, because that was also a Claremont book. And he really keep uh, to continue to type between those books, right? Yeah, there were, there were certain plot threads that were kind of jumping back and forth between uh, X-Men and New Mutants. I do agree, though. I think right before the massacre is probably where there's kind of, there's kind of a very, uh, to my mind, a very... Linear? That's not or what I'm trying to say. Okay. <laughs> and right around 209, which is two, 210 is the start of the Mutant Massacre. So there's kind of an intuitive break 
right around 209. And uh, I think the classic X-Men reprints stopped at around 206 or so. Actually, and in, in, in 209, is that's when classic X-Men started. There's an ad in the back of 209 for uh, classic X-Men number one. So it is kind of intuitive breaking point. As far as the continuity being impenetrable, I didn't mention this before, but I, I had seen there was a... Do you guys remember this? There was It was 1987, I believe, although I saw it aired in 88, a uh, pilot, an animated X-Men series pilot. Yep, Pride, Pride of the X-Men. X-Men. Pride of the X-Men, yeah. I've never yeah. seen that. Oh, no? no. It's, the, it's, <laughs> it's kind of the classic uh, team lineup from circa Days of Future Past, although they add Dazzler. Um, right. But it's it's Wolverine in the brown and orange costume and Storm Colossus Nightcrawler. All those. Wonderful. Kitty Pride, Kitty Pride, but no Phoenix. And uh, I thought that was so cool. And that was actually my first exposure to the X-Men. And then I went and bought a Claremont issue that had Longshot and <laughs> Dazzler was there. But a Longshot and Rogue and, and Psylocke. And Hector, you said that you got into it from the, 90, the 90s cartoon. The 90s cartoon, yeah. The and then bought X-Men number 50 and yeah. didn't, any, didn't recognize anyone? No, no, I didn't know what the hell was happening. And now we're both obsessed. Yeah. That touches off kind of a big picture question for me, because, Jason, I know you're, if you're not the world's foremost Claremont fan, and you might be, <laughs> you are the world's foremost Wild Cards fan, which is, a, for the, <laughs> those who don't know, it's a series that, George R.R. R. Martin has edited for 30 years. It's going to be an HBO show. I know you recently went and um, to a convention and met him. And we're going to talk about that's it. What, that, we got to do a show about or, that. Or, or but, never, I don't know. Yeah, or never. <laughs> but the what, never thing that's common, it makes me wonder if that's part of the appeal for you, is this proliferation of characters. It's a universe where instead of the old way, a superhero is a very specific loner and there's been a story that happened to him and this is his deal and this is why he's a hero and this is why he has powers. And then you step into the Claremont universe, which is really the X-Men premise, but Claremont, you know, is who we're talking about. And characters just happen in like a quantum chaos. They just appear. (laughs) I have powers. Look at my costume. And I have a name. (laughs) And if you read Claremont's X-Men, there's just so many of them and they're so creative. And it reminds me of Wild Cards. And again, for those that haven't read it, it's kind of like this Terrigan mist falls over the earth and just makes superheroes and villains with powers proliferate. For, for no particular reason other than they've been exposed to the gas. Is that part of the appeal, do you think, the way there's just so many characters and, and one can can come on the stage at any time? It is for me. I, I, a, a lot of fans uh, like their heroes or superheroes to change, and I'm not really one of those fans. I mean, I like Superman, say Superman. I like Batman, stay Batman, and all that stuff. I don't need to, to change them. I don't need them to change and evolve. But the X-Men... Uh, are different because uh, they really change as they go. I mean, if if you read uh, one term, one glamour is fifty is better. It's a completely different team. They are changed. I mean, they they are different. And they evolve, and I really love that. That's uh, that's the main reason why I love uh, Chris Claremont in X Men. I mean, because they are really different. They are constantly changing. They don't get stuck in one place. They go to Australia. They go. They fake their deaths. They are always changing. They are always evolving. I mean, that's why. That's uh, I mean, that that's the main reason. You know, I, I'd like to just kind of jump in and kind of ask, like, uh, what do you guys think is the difference between Chris Claremont's X? Because some people call it a really, you know, it's influential. It's a, like a game changer for comics. Um, and I've always been kind of one of those people that, and I haven't read the entire run. I kind of stopped with John Byrne stuff, which is actually, you know, as Jason mentioned earlier, is the more traditional approach to Marvel comics of the time period. But, you know, I look at stuff like, you know, um, John Buscema and Roy Thomas's Avengers run or something along those lines. And to me, 
when I read the John Byrne X-Men run, it just felt like kind of a uh, logical extension of that, but not tremendously different. Like, what is the difference between team superhero books prior to Chris Claremont's X-Men and after Chris Claremont's X-Men? How do you think he changed the game? I think it probably goes back to what Jay was asking about the, uh, and Hector was just talking about as far as the, that proliferation of characters. Um, I mean, as I recall, I haven't read all of Thomas and, uh, is it Buscema or Buscema? Uh, I think I always pronounce it Buscema, but it might be something else. I don't know. It's also pronounced Larson. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Larson is an often common pronunciation. Yeah. As I recall, I mean, there was a lot going on in the Roy Thomas, in any Roy Thomas comic from that era. And yet it, it, it never I quite felt... Uh, the the quantum chaos to use Jay's term and it never felt quite that intense or that expansive although there was certainly some soap opera elements and there were there were ongoing threads there's something about seeing it one way and then seeing it another way and needing to know how it got there to, right. to see what to see, to read one x-men issue or see a cartoon or whatever and it's this and then you read a comic and it's something totally different and yet there's just enough continuity and allusions and references to make you realize they're not just separate. It's all one story. So how did it get from this to that? I think that's actually a pretty common experience. I don't know what modern comic book fans that are young experience these days, but isn't that kind of a common experience for guys our ages and older? You know, you kind of, there weren't these digital libraries online where you could download anything to your tablet. There weren't, you know, there's like complete sets of masterworks, essentials, trade paperbacks, et cetera, et cetera. It was kind of like you went to the store, you, you picked up a book, you often wouldn't know who was who or what was what, you know, you kind of mentioned how the uh, pride of the X-Men cartoon was different from what you saw. Like the lineup was totally different. I I had a similar experience with Spider-Man as a kid because I was getting Marvel tales as we talked about earlier, but at the time in the regular amazing and spectacular Spider-Man series, he was wearing a black costume. And at the time I was really kind of confused. Like why is Spider-Man wearing, you know, the car when he wears in the cartoons and in the toys and everything like that, in this book, but in the other book, he's wearing the black costume. And, you know, at the time I didn't realize Marvel tales were reprints, but there is that kind of like confusion that happens when you first start getting into superhero comic books. And I think what makes people fans is kind of the fact that some people would read one of these, like, I don't know what's happening and I don't care enough to find out. And then people like us who are confused, but figure, okay, there must be some incredible backstory here that I need to dig up and figure out. There's, a, there's an interview with um, a guy, I don't think we've talked about him yet. His name is Grant Morrison. And uh, Hector, have you ever heard of him? He's a minor figure. We need to talk about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he, you probably read this interview, Hector, where he, he talks about that was what hit, got him into comics. He read a DC comic, a Justice League something, and it was, had the Justice Society and the Justice League and a million characters in it. And he didn't yeah, know who any of them one, were. One of those uh, crises, I think. Chris on Earth 2 or something like that. Yeah, one of the old Silver Age crisis yeah. yeah. They all had these cool costumes and cool names, and there was so much evocative about it and kind of fired his imagination. And, and like what you were saying, Hanzo, it was at a time when you couldn't just go online and find out. You couldn't just Google Dr. Fate. It's right, like, yeah, how do yeah. I find out who is Dr. Fate? The, the um, kids don't know how good they have it these days. For me, the, yeah. for me, the, the relevant before and after, I, I was first reading it regularly, probably 1980. And everyone knew this is the new X-Men. There was an old one and they cleaned house. And that seems so <laughs> mysterious that you could just do that. And we would be like, well, 
Professor X was in it. Yeah, yeah. And Cyclops was. Yeah. So it's not totally new. No, but everybody else is totally new. And it just seems so mysterious that he had like flushed all the students and brought in new ones that it made it more fascinating. And then we had we had the Fireside books. And I know you guys know what those are, like Origins of Marvel Comics. And so sure enough, in Son of Origins of Marvel Comics, there was the the, the original X-Men team in their uniforms, the classic sort of X-Men first class type uniforms. Mm-hmm. And then this new one, I'll mention this, the costuming, I think, was part of it for me because, not just for me, I think for everybody, because we now know with the, looking back, that Dave Cochran was probably one of the best costume designers to to ever walk the earth. And so X-Men always had these characters that just kind of fully formed when I'm Psylocke, and they also had a costume that someone had put some thought into it, especially in the early going. They never minimized sort of the importance of the visual in terms of how the character looked in costume. And to this day, I think that was influential, that that, that became like a big part of 1990s comics and even today, cosplay and all that. But when I was a kid, it was X-Men that had all the best costumes, the most color, <laughs> and really the most inventive design. Yeah, I actually have to really agree with you there. I do like the uh, kind of the aesthetic of the Dave Cockrum costumes. I think it's kind of the most classic, iconic version of the X-Men in my mind, uh, but I will point out a dark truth, and that's that both Colossus and Nightcrawler are using the same red flared shoulder pads. That <laughs> um, is true. Yeah, and it's great. It's great. <laughs> Dave, Cockrum, Dave Cockrum is a hack. He phoned it in. Yeah. Buccaneer <laughs> boots, just like Storm's, Storm's boots and Phoenix boots. Yeah, they're the same. Exactly. Same boots. The, bo- the, the boots Saturn are the bats. Girl. Yeah. Saturn girls costume is like Storm's. Colossus also had thigh highs, so I mean, really. Uh. How can you melt that? <laughs> Cockrum had one idea, and he melted. Yeah, yeah, he boots. Style is, is such an important part of the X Men. I'm, I'm glad X Men Apocalypse finally translated that to the screen. <laughs> is that sarcasm? A little sarcasm. bit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, that, 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 that's uh, Apocalypse power in the movie to to give them extreme makeovers to all the characters. <laughs> I guess that's what he did in the comics too. Jay, when did you uh, stop reading? Um, right around um, high 180s, somewhere okay. around in, uh, around oh, Secret, Secret Wars. Wars. Right around when Secret <laughs> Wars was coming out, I just kind of drifted away. But I had a subscription. In the old days, you guys talk about trades and Google. It was actually difficult to track down all the issues <laughs> if you're a non-driving kid. So I had subscriptions. And uh, for me, The Brood was a big storyline. Um, if you read The Brood now, you kind of go, Oh, this is sort of like Aliens. This is probably what was real popular in the 80s. And then, but it, it was before Aliens. It was after Alien. But Alien was a haunted house story with one alien. There had been no aliens. And th- here's this race of alien-like things that are taking people over with a queen. And so right around that time, I had been reading it every month. I had a subscription from The Brood all the way to, I'm going to say 1985, 86. I quit then. Okay. Really, it was all comics. I had a few subscriptions. So the ones, I think I stayed the longest with um, with John Byrne's Fantastic Four just because of the timing of the subscription. And maybe uh, Spider-Man, like Peter Parker, I went the longest. But by about 1987, 86, I was kind of completely out for a while. And coincidentally, that's when comics went completely down <laughs> the toilet. Of course. It's, of course. It's weird how that works out. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and for the listeners that don't know, I came back. I'm, I'm, I'm an every Wednesday guy now, but there was a, there's sort of a 17 year gap in there that I had to fill in. 
Turns out I missed a lot of great comics in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you missed, there was Jay, one about a, a green guy no, with a fin on the head. The Hulk with a fin on his head, yeah. Oh, I, 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 anyone know that one? Dragon. <laughs> the legendary. Well, you really missed, Jay, is uh, the last five years of Claremont's X-Men. I did. 86 to I 91, did. which was and the I best. Point out, I subscribed to New Mutants. I read uh, probably the first 28 issues of New Mutants. It was actually my favorite of the two for a while. And probably, guys, for those of you that discovered it, I don't know how, but when something comes along and it's the New Mutants and it's like your thing, it's like, oh, this one was the one he invented while I was reading. And so I kind of latched <laughs> onto it for that reason. You know, that's actually funny. I, um, that, you know, you were just going on me for Savage Dragon, but that was the genesis of savage dragon was i was excited that when image came out and i don't want to get too far off topic but since jim lee was the one that crushed chris claremont's hopes and dreams it's still really sad and yeah but there was like when that first came out you know i was actually like a for a kid my age even though all the kids i knew read comics i was a little more of a historian than they were and i was thinking oh man this is like 1961 1962 1963 all over again you know like it's young blood totally. and wildcats and uh, spawn and savage dragon these are going to be the new and i'm going to have Spider-Man. all the number ones and, you know like Batman, all, yeah right yeah you, I, you I were right these were, <laughs> were going to be the new ones and you know at the time so i uh you know, I, I, that's actually what started me on Savage Dragon was he was the only creator that stayed with his book. And I liked the idea of having a book, reading a book from start. When I started reading Spider-Man, it was in the 200s or something or, yeah, like maybe the 300s even. So that was exciting. And really, Savage Dragon was the only good one of the of the bond, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to sit here and say it's up there with, you know, the works of Alan Moore or even Chris Claremont, to be honest. But it's, it's you know, it's a unique property. It's It's a comic book that's really identifiable to its creator like you know he's basically when you read savage dragon the only guy that could do that book was eric larson it, it has a voice you know like a personal it, it voice, has a voice. No, i mean it's not really like i don't find it as creatively ambitious it's not Maybe like it's not a great voice but it has one <laughs> <laughs> it's an enjoyable voice it's, you know it's an off-key sort of out of yeah. tune voice but it's uh it's it's its own it's actually a pretty pretty cool little series you know it's it's a unique little thing i know it's not for everyone but uh well, I think, uh, yeah, the idea of um, yeah taking ownership of something that started when you were right there, um, I, I, that was to some degree calculated from what I understand on, on Claremont's part. I think that that's why he was always creating new characters. He knew that he was in a unique circumstance uh, of writing a series for a very, very long time. And that if you just kept on writing about Colossus and Nightcrawler and Wolverine, uh, well, Wolverine would probably be fine. <laughs> People like him a lot. But um, with the other ones, he sort of kind of realized, well, every generation wants to be able to say, well, these are my X-Men. So at a certain point in the 80s, along comes Psylocke and Longshot and, and, and Rogue. Yeah, and then at a, certain, at, a, at a certain point after that, Jubilee and Gambit, that was Claremont as well. Those are like quintessential kind of 90s X-Men well, characters. And Gambit, that's, created that's, those actually, two. The, that's Gambit actually the premise of, 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 you know, of human civilization. Yeah. What I was saying is that Hector is a big Gambit fan. Yeah. The premise of X-Men enables that is it's it's the one book that you don't have to have any explanation for each character you invent. You don't have to go, you know, he was walking down an alley and then there was uh, you know, it just basically, hey, I'm Psylocke. And you I was born this way. And all you have to have <laughs> well, is a name. Psylocke's <laughs> not a great example, but <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, well, Psylocke was not a mutant. But like he's walking down the street, being white, and I don't know where these ninjas come. <laughs> yeah, it, even it before happen, that, it can happen to everyone. I mean, to anyone. So, no, manage your own business, and then you turn Asian. 
Psylocke had a long um, kind of pre-X-Men history. Well, let me ask you this, Jason, because we ought to be wrapping up pretty soon, but I, and you guys can answer too. I just always want to know Jason as the number one fan. Are you, do you have an uneasy truce with Wolverine's popularity and kind of transcendence? Or are you just fully embracing it and he's your favorite character anyway? How do you feel about the way Wolverine kind of became bigger than the rest of them? Uh, when I was a kid, he was my favorite. He was, I guess, talking about the, the comics that come out when you're reading. The Wolverine solo, the ongoing Wolverine solo that started in 1988 was right when I was kind of getting into it. So even though it, he wasn't a new character, the series was new. And there was a new, it was, that was when he was in a, a place called Madripoor, which was like a Casablanca S Casablanca meets Tortuga kind of thing. Yeah. Was um, kind of, wasn't it I like mean, a, um, kind of an analog to, uh, the only thing I can really remember of it is like a kid, an American kid was cane there one time. Singapore. 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 Madripoor, yeah, Singapore. Madripoor. Yeah. That was probably the closest analog. And then, uh, Wolverine at the time it was when the X Men were believed dead, and so Wolverine disguised yeah. himself with an eye with an eye patch. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he was called Patch. That, that he was called Patch, and he couldn't use. No one cast him. Clark Kent gets the goof yeah. on. He tried. He tried to gouge his eye out to make it realistic, but he kept growing back. <laughs> and he, but he couldn't use his claws when anyone was watching. He, he could but only, he could but who knew that he was actually a predecessor to the Wild Pirates of the Caribbean phenomenon? Exactly. He's really ahead of his time. And Claremont invented everything. Of course. Um, Claremont obviously embraced Wolverine's popularity to some degree. Uh, there were, you know, more than one stretch where it was Wolverine was really the centerpiece of, of the X Men series uh, because they knew that was the the way to sell it. You know, but it wasn't forced. I mean, it was natural because uh, uh, under Claremont, he became a really good character. I mean, one of my favorite stories mm -hmm. was where, when they went to Japan. For Wolverine's wedding, I mean, I love the yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a uh, it's Paul Wright. No, it's uh, Paul Smith. Paul Smith. Paul Wright is another guy. I'm sorry, I don't know why I was thinking about that. Yeah, and, and I mean, it it was great. I mean, uh, I I loved his first uh, team up with Rogue because I, I knew Rogue from the cartoon. I mean, like this uh, heroic character. I didn't know he she was a villain. And then the the first how they developed uh, their relationship. I mean, it was all really cool. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I guess, as a casual X-Men fan, I mean, to me, it's like, uh, and I know this is, would create eye rolling among any serious X-Men fans, but like for me, it's got to have Wolverine. I think for like the kind of the larger public that's more casual, I've noticed that the X-Men movies that have Wolverine or Hugh Jackman, I don't know which one of the two is the more popular, but those are the ones that seem to do the best. Like even a movie that, you know, arguably is the best X-Men first class didn't do as well as the other X-Men movies. And I think one factor for that is that it didn't have kind of the most popular character. Like what the thing is to the fantastic four, he seems to be to the X-Men. Yeah. I guess you can't really argue with success when it, when it turns out to be not just comic book fans, but um, you know, normal people who watch movies also embrace Wolverine as their favorite. Um, I mean, that's, isn't that kind of one of the biggest complaints of a, uh, you know, up until recently with, you know, the first class reboot is that it, it really just seemed like the first three X-Men movies were basically Wolverine movies co-starring, you know, the X-Men. Like there's that animated series, Wolverine and the X-Men. That's what they should have called those movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've never had a chance. My high school's mascot was Wolverine's. Wolverine was in popularity. And then Red Dawn came out and they were all like, Wolverine. <laughs> so now to this day, I'm programmed to have like a positive association with it. It was just in the air. Is the zeitgeist as uh, as, zeitgeist. as Claire would say? Part about my high school, it was nothing zeitgeisty about. <laughs> if you think about it, though, he was probably the only post Lee Kirby Ditko Marvel character to really 
join the upper echelon of those other characters in popularity. Like he, he was comparable to Spider-Man. He was more popular than like Thor and uh, fantastic four. So, I mean, really, if you think about it, he's, he's kind of like the last iconic character created by Marvel. Deadpool's starting to get up there though. Deadpool is starting to get up there. Yeah. No, yeah. No, Deadpool seems to be the next one, but I mean, um, crazily enough, the most uh, successful X-Men movie is actually Deadpool. It's Deadpool, yeah. And I have taken the decision. James will not let me have it, but I think uh, Winter Soldier counts, and he may be um, another candidate for the third sort of post-Silver Age creation. Bucky. Bucky James' position is, well, Bucky's not new. He's around. But Winter Soldier is sort of a new superhero. Don't you think the character only really works with the Captain America backstory that was created? I mean, yeah. I I agree with Jay. I mean, Winter Soldier is a new character, just like Nightwing. Okay. <laughs> that, that one was a failure. I, I agree with that. <laughs> I, anyway, I guess, yeah, I think Claremont embraced the, the Wolverine popularity thing. And, you know, when, when he did a classic X-Men, originally, later it became a pure reprint series. But there was a point where classic X-Men early on was Claremont was doing, he was George Lucas before George Lucas was. He was adding new scenes. Backup stories. To those old comics, yeah. Not just backup stories, though. There was new pages. Oh, really? In between in the original ones. Did they yeah, they had... the artist that drew the original? Sometimes they got Dave Cockrum back or they got uh, some the original artist back or the original inker or the original letterer. The Nazi counting Magneto? That's great. That, that's, uh, that's a backup, right? <laughs> oh, that's classic. Yeah. yeah, that was the backup stories. But um, for the, yeah, John Byrne did not come back and help out with that, oh, <laughs> as you might expect. That's they they, that's they got, uh, what's his name, Kieran Dwyer, his son-in-law. I guess that was... They know how to get in touch with him anytime. <laughs> yeah. In those backup stories and in the in the new pages, Wolverine would kind of get a bigger role than he did originally. So, ah. so it, I know Hector, you said it wasn't forced, but sometimes it was. <laughs> sometimes you kind of shove Wolverine into places. Yeah, that I actually have a, another question, Jason. Since you're you know the X Men encyclopedia, um, when did the Magneto Holocaust background come into play? Because when you read some of those early Lee and Kirby X Men, there's really no mention to him being a Holocaust survivor. And it's hard to imagine two Jewish guys that served in the military during World War II, especially Kirby, who was you know, an advanced scout and, and saw action, portraying a Holocaust survivor as such a dastardly guy. And that seems <laughs> kind of... So, so I, I believe Claremont was the one that kind of created that backstory, right? And at what point did it kind of become a thing within the series? It was uh, 1981, uh, X-Men number 150. Um, That's right. <laughs> That's right. This okay. is this is all this is all covered in the book, by the way. Yeah, which we can um, get on Amazon. Which you can get on Amazon or Secret. Low no, price, one fifty nine ninety nine. That was where, it, for, in the final few pages, uh, Magneto uh, in the fight with the X Men, he kills Kitty Pride, or he thinks he has, uh, who's uh, you know the only Jewish member of the team at that point, and probably for a long time actually, and it kind of shocks him, and um, he starts talking about, and it's 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 not it's not uh, totally on the nose, but it's pretty pretty clearly an allusion to the Holocaust. I'm not sure that uh, the word Holocaust is used. Um, but again, the kind of thing that when I was reading when I was 10, probably didn't know exactly what he was talking about. But he starts talking about the, his loved ones, his family being killed, his wife. Uh, possibly he mentions his daughter. I'm not sure. That's a retcon that really just completely took over the character. I mean, when you see the movie, yeah. it's the definitive aspect of Magneto. And actually, the thing that makes him go from kind of the typical dastardly Red Skull, Doctor Doom type to become arguably alongside the joker the the best and most popular superhero villain 
That's one of the reasons I don't like the, the Jumban run as well, because the Magneto there is uh, the usual, you know, evil Magneto. And I, I prefer the conflicted Magneto, the one who is an Holocaust survivor and the one who has uh, doubts about what he's doing. And he's not really a villain. He's more like a... Can we say he's an anti-hero or not? I think that's fair, yeah, anti-hero. Or, um, I, I sort of... One of the, one of the, <laughs> there you go. That's another, that's another good word. One of the one of the if, if the book can be said to have a thesis or, or theses is that uh, Magneto is kind of Claremont's most uh, three dimensional uh, character over the course of that that fifteen year run. It's the character that was fleshed out the most, given the most humanity. And I, I sort of come, come come out at the end of the book and say he's not really a hero or a villain. He's just he is what he is. You know, he's an antagonist, but not really a villain. Yeah, and at certain points he was the protagonist. He was he joined the oh, X Men yeah. from issue two hundred. Or no, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, issue 200 to uh, well, then he then he kind of got shunted off of the new I, I prefer Magneto. Uh, he can be um, sort of full rounded, but I like him to where his mission in life is to is to take over the world for the good of mutants. I mean, it just works perfectly yeah. for him to be. There would have to be one of the most powerful mutants that would say, "Mankind hates us. We're going to squash mankind and take over." And then his opposite number, Professor X, is like. You know, no, we're part of, it's sort of like the Superman Zod thing. There's got to be, there's got to be one that says it's just us and humans are beneath us. And there's got to be one that says, but we are fully human. Yeah. yeah at various that. points, you know, this was just in the, um, honest trailer for the, uh, the recent X-Men apocalypse movie. They kind of mentioned at the end, you know, there's that scene at the end of all the X-Men movies where Charles and, uh, Eric are like bantering with each other. And then the, the honest, really guys like, well, he, did he just kill like, you know, thousands of people? Can you really <laughs> be bantering at that point? You know, is, isn't that change the friendship a little bit? It's not a good time uh, for banter. No. Right. Right. Is there oh, Unabomber, you and your silly way. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah. I mean, it is, before, uh, before, before that retcon, he was a pretty dastardly guy, you know, twirling his mustache, tying women to train tracks, all that kind of stuff. And, <laughs> It does seem kind of odd that like he could be, you know, a guy that was trying to kill everyone at one point, And then now he's, you know, you would never, it's kind of an unusual character thing. You know, you'd never really see anyone in real life be redeemed. Like it's not like Bin Laden could ever become part of the U.S. military, you know, yeah. that would just well, never that, happen. From uh, X-Men 150 to, I don't know, to mid-90s, I think they kind of retconned uh, Magneto killing people. And I, he, he really wasn't trying to kill people. And he was, uh, you know, like doing his thing, and they tried to stop him, but there were no, not, not many deaths. I think that he he destroyed a submarine, but that was it. He destroyed the submarine, yeah. That, I mean, was like, that, that was like the big deal. I mean, oh, he sunk a submarine, but that was it. I mean, all the other anything before, fact, yeah. yeah, that kind of you know was uh, forgotten. Well, know. as far as um, no. I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll lay this one out there because this is from uh, the book and from Claremont interviews since since the inspiration. The inspiration behind that was uh, Menachem Begin, and I'll just, I won't do this again, but uh, just once let me, I'll quote from the book and quote myself quoting Claremont uh, from an interview that he did where he said, in my case, I was looking at the paradigm suggested by someone like Menachem Begin, who started out life wanted by the British as a terrorist, and yet here he is, Prime Minister of Israel, and holy cow, sitting there with Jimmy Carter and Anwar Sadat and winning the Nobel Peace Prize. This is reality. And if you can have a moment like that in reality, then as a writer, one should try to examine the truth behind that. What teaches, what helps someone who in his youth was a killer for a good cause, 
and leads him to the point where he holds out a hand of friendship to his enemy, because that perhaps will lead to a more lasting and beneficial peace. And that's all, that's all Claremont from an interview that he did for uh, a documentary. So Menachem Begin, you can see why Claremont thought that there were parallels with Magneto. If you look at this, this was a Russian Jew born in 1913, tortured in Russian labor camps as a young man in his 20s. Then after his release, or shortly after his release, he joined a Zionist paramilitary group and uh, eventually founded a political party who were denounced as terrorists by several uh, prominent and significant American Jews, including Albert Einstein, who said that Begin's organization was uh, closely akin in their methods, political philosophy, and social appeal to the Nazi and fascist parties. And uh, later, Begin became prime minister of Israel. He was prime minister from 77 to 83, which Claremont revealed the Holocaust backstory for Magneto in 1981. So he began right around that same time, that evolution of Magneto from terrorist to, to X-Man uh, in parallel with what he was seeing happening, unfolding in real life. In 1978, Begin and uh, the Egyptian president Anwar el-Sadat signed the Camp David Accords, witnessed by U.S. President Jimmy Carter, which in turn led to the 1979 Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty. And Begin and Sadat were awarded the 1978 Nobel Peace Prize for their accomplishment, a peace treaty that remains in effect to this day. So, so while some people have criticized the Magneto change as being unrealistic, uh, it was Claremont's attempt, successful or not, depending on who you talk to, to make Magneto seem more realistic and not less. I can't hear you guys. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can oh. hear everybody. Oh, I think he... Oh, looks like he dropped he, off. He's having technical difficulties. He'll be back in a moment. All right. So well, let's talk about Eric Larson again. Okay. Can you hear uh, sorry, uh, my computer must have been freezing up. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, he said so he... Uh, no, um, just to, just to finish the, the story so arc, Anwar Sadat was assassinated a few years later, largely because he did that deal with Israel. But the peace remains, right? That, that treaty is still... I mean, not the peace, it I guess. Is. Well, um, it's obviously a bit tumultuous, but... In trouble, but sounds like you spent more time reading comic books than watching the news. Yes. Well, that's true. <laughs> but once Claremont mentioned Begin, I had to Google him and find out what this yeah. was all about. But yeah. so the point was that he actually... Claremont was trying to make Magneto more realistic, not less, by saying, well... Interesting. If, if someone in real life can go from being a terrorist and brokering a peace treaty, then Magneto could maybe do the same thing. You know, I never got to uh, get around to how I discovered Chris Claremont and the X-Men... And that was actually through the Jim Lee X-Men number one, number two, and number three issues. Uh, it was one of those deals when comics were at their peak of popularity. We were at a supermarket. There was like a, one of those shrink wrapped with like, you know, how they would have like three comics in a shrink wrap you could buy for $2 or something like that. Those comics were in, you know, and I was like, oh, wow, number one, you know, so I... I I bought it. You know, that was my kind of like my mm. first exposure to X-Men was the end of X-Men basically, or at the end of Chris Claremont's X-Men. And, and I like the Savage Dragon number one. Those issues are worth just I, millions. I, I can't believe I forgot that. That was as of the first Chris Claremont comic book I read. Was X-Men number one? X-Men, yeah. It was a reprint. And yeah, that, that's where I was, that was my love for Chris Claremont started because uh, the art was fantastic. It, right. was, uh, it, it was the X-Men I knew from, from the cartoon. And I love the story. I love Magneto. It has this, uh, I remember it had this uh, enormous war balloons. We haven't talked about that. I think about Clermont style, he likes the word balloons. <laughs> the words. Yeah, you know, I was just about to bring that up too. Was just, you know, that's probably alongside his, um, his Batman run, probably my favorite Jim Lee art job. 
And one of the things I always remember was issue two was where Magneto and the X-Men fight each other, you know? And the, the splash page. Right, the, the double page, yeah. the double splash and everything. I just remember the sheer volume of talking during this fight <laughs> scene, you know? Like, one of the things I'll always remember is when uh, you're a nice guy. Gambit says something, he's like, so I won't charge these cards enough to kill. And he throws them. And then Manny says, a fortunate decision, young man, for you. And he, like, reverses the cards back to us. You know, because if you think about how fast that, the actual action of charging the cards have been throwing them would be and him reversing it would be so fast. But you know, they're, they're having these like soliloquies. Basically it's like this kind of like debate format. You know, they're, they're debating each other as if they're on a lectern, but they're in, in the midst of uh, battling each other. And, you know, I kind of just think that sums up superhero comics to a T is like, you know, you have the, the word balloons and all the ideas, but at the same time you're looking at like the hardcore action scene. It'd almost be like listening to, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone deliver like a Hamlet style monologue while firing an AK 47 at, you know, evil terrorists or whatever. Uh, to be or not to be. Not, not to be. be. I'll just um, mention this one thing. I think you guys, I may have told you this before, but it, it's just a funny timing. I got married in 92. I was young. I was not even yet 23 because I was going in the Air Force. And I'm still married today. Same woman. And I claim all <laughs> the children. Were down. Yes. <laughs> and Brenda, um, so that was uh, right around April 92-ish when we were kind of starting in the Air Force. And for me, that's when the X-Men cartoon came on. I don't know when it started, but it seemed to be like as soon as we got married and moved to our new house, there's this X-Men cartoon on. And I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I never missed it. And my wife was like, what have I done? <laughs> she knew that was just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, because she had not happened to have learned that particular part of my past. You know, it was deep in the past that I was right. a comic person. And it, here I it, am. It was dark. Little did she know that in five years you would be dressed as Steve Austin. And she That's right. Been. That's right. She learned many other things that were troubling after that day. But the X-Men cartoon was like her first sign of trouble. Uh, you married her just in time. Uh, no, I would have yeah. outed myself like before before the wedding. So she'd have been like, "What?" That's, well, happy anniversary. So she's more of an Avengers so fan, is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I she ended up being, she ended up being okay with it. She was okay with it. We're coming up on our silver anniversary. Oh, I was going to say this. I believe awesome. today, this month is the silver anniversary of X Men number one. I believe it came out in October Ooh, of 1991. That yeah, was even more. I told her we can't get married until that comes out. And then went to That's how I always remember your anniversary, Jay. I think when right. X Men number one come out, <laughs> time to mail the gift. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, I actually timed, or we tried to time the book that way. It would come out the same, the 25th anniversary of Claremont's well, sort of. You know, Excellent. spoilers, guys, keep a secret, but anniversary gift, best there is at what he does by Jason Powell. I'm going to present that to Brenda. <laughs> you got birthdays, anniversary anniversary gift. Anything coming up. Yeah, Claremont, I guess we can talk about as, as we're winding down here, uh, the, the sort of circumstances of Claremont leaving was uh, there was a, a kind of a almost kind of a ironically anal analogous situation to when it was John Byrne drawing and Roger Stern editing. They, those two were kind of simpatico and uh, were trying to steer Claremont a little bit, even though Claremont was ostensibly the writer. The same thing kind of happened with Bob Harris, the editor, and Jim Lee, the artist who were working with Claremont starting in, uh, I think Bob Harris came on in 88, and Jim Lee uh, did his first X-Men work in 89, and really became hot in 90. So it became uh, Harris and Lee started to steer it, and you started to see in the credits, instead of seeing Chris, Chris Claremont writer, Jim Lee penciler, you would see uh, Jim Lee co-plotter and penciler, Claremont script or something. 
Um, the other connection too to the John Byrne X Men run was that Jim Lee was a huge fan of that era of X Men, as were a lot of comic yes. fans, especially artists too, because artists really yeah. like John Byrne's artwork, myself included. He kind of wanted to do, from what I've read, like a greatest hits. You know, right. He wanted to go back to the Savage Land. He wanted to do the Sentinels. He wanted to do, you know, just basically a lot of the stu- same stuff. He it was kind of like a nostalgia trip for him. And Chris Claremont, obviously, having lived through that, you know, was interested in kind of breaking new ground. But it was an artist-dominated time in the industry. Yeah, it was. Yeah, the, the industry as a whole and, and fandom. And uh, and Bob Harris was kind of the tiebreaker. And he was also a fan of the John Byrne era. And uh, just kind of had that that sort of notion of, you know, this is what the X-Men are. I, I guess maybe didn't realize <laughs> how wonderful it can be for someone to see a cartoon and then pick up the comic and have it not be anything like the cartoon. I think I think Marvel's editorial or Marvel's company line at the time was, let's have it be uniform across all these different media. If there's an X-Men cartoon, it should match the comic, et cetera, et cetera. Synergy. Synergy, yeah. yeah. So, uh, That's why they yeah. brought in Morph. And, and exactly and claremont was outvoted and and so in uh, uh december of 1991 was when uh, his final uh, x-men volume two number three the conclusion of that magneto story that was published in december of 91 i believe and that was his last one and uh without much fanfare was kind of gone he put a little uh his initial csc uh, 1975 to 1991 at the, on the bottom of the last page and that was kind of Oh, it's almost stunning in retrospect, too, when you think about how long he was on the book, how long he was the number one seller, and that not even 12 issues later, Jim Lee would have left Marvel to create Image Comics yeah. and uh, the property Wildcats, which seems tremendously different than X-Men. So it's kind of like they threw away this guy that was the number one selling writer for decades, just to kind of jump on the ship of this artist who is really kind of, you know, going to leave in less than a year's time. It seems in retrospect to be a huge, I mean, I, X-Men was, remained a great seller, but it almost seems like a, a, a blunder by Bob Harris. Yeah. To, I, I think Jim Lee said that he was going to stay in the book for like 50 issues. I, I don't uh, think that happened, right? Yeah, it, wasn't, mean, it wasn't quite 50. Yeah, <laughs> slightly under. He, he was going to uh, get to it right after he did the 1963. And, <laughs> yeah. and I mean, to be, I guess, to be fair, so it's quote unquote fair to Bob Harris. I mean, I, he didn't want Claremont to leave. He sort of said, look, let's just try to find a, a kind of balance or a, a equilibrium, you know, but, but let's let Lee do what he wants to do and you'll still get to do what you want to do sometimes. Yeah, actually, but, why, why didn't he just take over Uncanny and then let Jim Lee play with whatever he wanted to play with over on the adjective list X-Men title. I, I think even that would have created kind of the situation that's existed ever since of that it's kind of a committee based, you know, it still wouldn't be Claremont calling the shots alone. Mm. Um, and I think he just felt like at that point he had earned the right to sort of control their destinies a little bit, you know, and there was already a Wolverine solo comic that he wasn't no longer writing and decisions were being made about Wolverine there that were affecting him. And he did say, I, there's an interview where he kind of talks about Jim Lee leaving a year later and sort of saying, Oh, if I had maybe have just written it out another year. And then he says later in the same interview, then again, they would have just gotten another artist and maybe that guy would have screwed me. Well, that reminds me, I know we got to wrap up, but where, where do you come down on like that weapon X storyline? Um, Jason, is that considered like a, a bad development that's like unfortunate or is that like a great idea? And I'm talking about the way it was revealed. Uh, it's kind of like the source of the first Wolverine mo- movie, but I had never read that before that movie. Wasn't that in like 91, right around the time we're talking about? I guess it depends on if you're talking about the, the, the Barry Windsor Smith, where it was just 
here's how he got his claws. Or are you talking about all the memory implants and the the larger? I don't know which came which. I always, I just, I, it was my understanding well, Barry, that, that that became part of it around 91 or 92 or well, 90 or It so. was earlier than that. Barry Windsor Smith uh, did the Weapon X storyline, I think in the late 80s um, in Marvel yeah. Comics Presents. Yeah, I think it was. It's an anthology title. I think it was 90 or 91. Right. 90, and then, yeah. The, the memory implants came in War Room 50, I think. It was uh, 93, it was somewhere around that time. But it wasn't Claremont. The Claremont people like despise the fact that such a significant <laughs> development happened that way. Or I can't, I won't speak for all the Claremont people, Jay. But you do. You know? Well, what do you think of it though? Like, do you? Well, do you the like uh, the original, I think the original Barry Windsor Smith that he wrote and drew and colored and lettered, or maybe he didn't letter it, but he did a lot. <laughs> it's it's very much a one man kind of show, and it almost seemed like trolling the readers a bit. It was here's how Wolverine got his skeleton, and then it's just him sitting in a tank with wires attached to him and. Some yeah. scientists are talking about for a pretty long time, like a hundred pages of that. The art was great, but the story there wasn't much story really. It isn't really a story. It's almost like a tone tonal piece. It's just sort of it's enjoyable. A sequence of events. <laughs> yeah, he's in a tank. He gets out of the tank. He kills everyone. <laughs> the end. <laughs> it's it's weird. It's a mood piece, and and I think a lot of people were like, "This is going to finally tell us who did it and why." And there's just a mysterious voice on the phone saying, "Do this to him." <laughs> so it didn't actually tell readers anything. And then uh, it's actually though. It kind of was better that way because if you think about, right. you know, some of the stuff that came afterwards where they tried to, you know, the stuff with, uh, was it Maverick and um, was Omega Red, who I loved at the time. I thought those characters were so cool at the time. Uh, and then later on, much later on, there was the Wolverine origin where he was James Howlett. I, th- I personally, you know, no, no disrespect and, to anyone that loves that stuff. I, I just thought that was horrible. And I just kind of prefer to not think of that when I uh, think of Wolverine. It just seems odd to me that Claremont wrote it for so long and it was so much his thing. And for him to not, for him to kind of leave it mysterious, I don't know. It's always struck me as kind of an ironic injustice that this came out in non-Claremont work. Yeah. I think, I think when Barry Windsor Smith pitched it, that was, they didn't know Claremont was going to be leaving. And I think that was why it was so vague and not much happened was because he was still leaving it for Claremont to really fill in the gaps and to reveal who was on that phone, you know? And then as it turned out, of course, Claremont left and it was left to other writers to sort of... It turned out to be Bob Harris on that phone. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And then, yeah, I I agree with James uh, or Hanzo, I'm sorry. Whatever one you like. I'm not a big fan of all the memory implant stuff. I sort of feel like that takes away uh, a simple concept, which is that a Wolverine knows his past, but the rest of us don't. Yeah, um, I, I, I kind of remember that was in the Mark Silvestri era where uh, Shiva the Destroyer was introduced. It was Wolverine number 50 with the die cut cover where the claws were tearing through the cover. You could see Wolverine's wow. Canadian secret agent file underneath. Yeah, I mean, I think if they had maybe kept it simple, but that that, that three-parter, that was Wolverine 48, 49, 50. I loved it when I was a kid. I did too, actually. I thought, I, yeah, it, I thought that Mark Silvestri's run was just... Really great, and uh, that's, it, that's uh, Larry Hama wrote it. That, that's Hama. the first appearance of the memory implants, I think. That was yeah, that was the first appearance of the memory implants, which turned out to be, I think, a bad idea. Um, Jason, I have a question for you. What What do you think about uh, the post nineteen ninety one Claremont comics, X Men comics? I, you know, the the revolution stuff you were talking about. I I'm, I only read a couple issues of it, and it was one of those things where. And this is the to me, this is the flip side of the coin of the continuity thing. I think when when you're a new fan, 
uh, and you, you're curious about this thing called X-Men because of the cartoon or the movie or whatever it is, and you you come into this dense continuity, I don't think it's off-putting at first. I think it's that Grant Morrison effect. I need to know who these people are. But when you leave and come back, I think it's a different thing. I think when you, for me, I, I stopped shortly after Claremont left. And then when I found out he was going to be writing them again, the first thing he did when he came back, it was seven years later, it was 1998. It was a four-part Wolverine story. Do you remember that? I don't remember that one. It was going to be, I think, a crossover with Wolverine and X-Men, but it, it turned out to be a four-part Wolverine story and it, it had a bunch of X-Men in it. It was confusing and it incorporated continuity from the seven years I had not read, but it also was kind of a throwback and it, it, he retconned some of his own stuff. And that turned out to be kind of a harbinger, I think, for what he did when they gave him both X-Men series. And it was a lot of going back to some of his old stuff and inserting new retcons. Yeah, that's kind of the uh, unusual thing about Chris Claremont's career is that he has that one great crown jewel of his Uncanny X-Men run. But once 1991 comes around, I can't really think of any particular, you know, like beloved work. Usually a, a writer of his stature, like, you know, like Mark Wade has Kingdom Come and then Irredeemable and then the Daredevil run. And he has all these, and you Kirk Busiek on and on. Chris Claremont, I can't really, and maybe this is just my ignorance, but after he left X-Men 1991, it just, I don't really, nothing jumps to mind as the great Chris Claremont stuff he's done in like the, what, 20, so, 30 years since? Sovereign 7? That was awesome. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I that, so. a, a, a classic. Yeah, I mean, he, he certainly was still doing stuff, and I, I've I've read a lot of it, um, not not all of it, um, but most of it. Um, but you're right. I mean, I, anything I can say about it, I can I can certainly tell all of you that it's wonderful and fantastic because it is. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you're you're right. I mean, history has kind of made its choice that X Men is his thing, and uh, they don't really seem all that interested in the other stuff. I mean, he did stuff before X Men too, like Iron Fist. Right. Um, Trivia trivia question answer. My favorite single comic book. The one that they say, what's your favorite comic book? Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing and Spider-Man where he's (laughs) paddling on the swamp. The Marvel team up with Man-Thing. That's Swamp Thing. What is that, number 68 or 58? And uh, Chris Claremont wrote it. Chris Claremont wrote it. He sort of recycled that story for X-Men 144. They both have despair in them. Yeah, and and Man-Thing. Yeah. Of course. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, and John Byrne drew that issue of Marvel Team Up. That's right. So, again, it goes back to a lot of people who go back to the Claremont Byrne stuff as being, because Claremont Byrne did Iron Fist 2, which maybe we'll see more interest in that now with the TV show. But, um, but yeah, for whatever reason, like you said, Hanzo, he has one crown jewel, and that, for whatever reason, that's it. But it's a big one. Ironically, he would go on and uh, write a little, and create The Huntsman with Jim Lee and write a few issues of Wildcats a few years I, later. I think he, yeah. he blamed Bob Harris more than Jim Lee for leaving the, the title. Yeah. I don't, he seems, I, I think he was angry at the time. I, I've read interviews that right after it happened, he didn't seem too keen on any of them, <laughs> per se. But yeah, he, he worked with Jim Lee later. He worked with Mark Silvestri on Cyberforce, since Silvestri and him had worked on X-Men together. And eventually wrote some issues of uh, Gen 13, he, which, he were edited, which were edited by Bob Harris's. He, he doesn't really hold any grudges after a long time. You know, it's, a, it's the anti, anti-Alan Moore. <laughs> Anti-John Byrne. Yeah. He never, he, he never really wrote anything to measure up to X-Men Hidden Years by John Byrne. That's probably, oh. he was intimidated by that. If we're going to hold that as the standard, I think, you know, just <laughs> shut down the comics industry and just call it a day, I think. Now we know why they were hit. Right. <laughs> They're too damn good. Yeah, I mean, so, well, yeah, Claremont's uh, bullpen nickname was uh, Cordial Chris Claremont. 
And so I, I get the impression that he was uh, a very agreeable sort of uh, passionate and would get into fights. He got into a big fight with Jim Shooter about the ending of the Dark Phoenix saga before realizing that Shooter was right on that one. Yeah, he doesn't seem to hold a grudge. He worked with Bob Harris later and uh, Jim Lee. I think with, if you're in a really creative industry like that or movies or anything where you're, it's highly collaborative, if you're going to hold grudges, you know, you're going to have to up in a message board alone. Yeah, <laughs> like some kind of a loser. Jay, do you want to give us a really brief uh, synopsis of that uh, Marvel, Marvel team-up issue? Just start with page one. The man thing is awesome and reveals <laughs> and someone catches on fire. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> like all man thing issues burn someone and is then there it, crazy, it, is there a crazy twist where man thing himself feels free and starts <laughs> feels fear and then it starts <laughs> we follow the rules of man thing no what about the twist where if you just peel back the layers of, of foliage from man thing underneath is wolverine <laughs> that can happen how jay how often did man thing feel fear and then start on fire did you uh I don't know. I, I have to I check that. He catches himself on fire. You remember when I did that semi blog thing where I was documenting the number of people he burned on fire? Yes. I yes. love that. Series. I, I never saw that actually. Yeah. I don't remember. It, was like, uh, it used to be a every issue thing. It was kind of like the Hulk. He, that was his only superpower was to basically burn people's faces. <laughs> uh, but uh, despair uh, made him do it. And, uh, I don't know. Did he do it? Did he ever interact with daredevil? The man without fear. I mean, was, <laughs> how, how did that showdown go? Yeah, uh, he. I don't think he would want to burn Daredevil anyway. That would not go well. Yeah, I just. Hey, feel you know, like that's I, the thing about uh, now we're doing Man Thing and Swamp Savage <laughs> Dragon and everything. But it actually wasn't fear. It was like he would burn somebody if they were just wrong. It was like whoever is wrong will burn at the touch of Man. <laughs> but the catchphrase was always fear, right? It is. It is because it had more of a ring to it. Um, well, I, I just fear. feel like. I For a story device, it didn't make sense because everybody knows fear, and he would just go around setting one on fire. But what he would do, I was just like the death blow. <laughs> That's a great idea for a character. <laughs> just goes around setting people on fire. <laughs> Wouldn't that be I, the Human Torch? I just feel like though that there was there became a point where the whole twist was Man Thing himself feels fear and burns at his own touch. Ooh. That's every Man Thing story I read had that twist, and it always seemed like it was the first time it happened. They always really Didn't that just happened in that Marvel team up. That's the only one I knew. Uh, every every Man Thing story I've read had happens. Well, does there, did those occur in guest appearances? Because not in the main book. Yes. Did we lose Hector? No. <laughs> I thought you were like Man Thing. I'm out of here. Closing note: Didn't didn't Claremont write the second Man Thing book? Did he write some of those? Yes. Yeah, he did because yeah. he put himself in one. I think that he's he appears. Yeah. In the panel of the second Man Thing series in about 1979, right? Yeah, I, I didn't know that until you told me, I think, Jay. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and then in he, that issue, Claremont, he's the one that ends up burning the Man Thing. Yeah. <laughs> he beats him at his own game. I think Bob Harris burns at the Man Thing statue. Um, and then he retconned it to be Jim Lee in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Right. So um, just Chris Claremont and a bunch of guys Man Things just all over the place. Yeah, there was a time when Claremont was writing uh, uh, Man Thing and Doctor Strange and a whole bunch of things that, like you said, Hansa never, no one ever cared about. They only cared about X Men for whatever reason. But yeah, it's just a really unusual character to have this just super popular, super lauded run on on a book, and then to not really have other projects or runs like that again. It just seems really. It, it's just a like I wonder what the reason for that is. You know, like why couldn't he take the things that made X Men appealing and bring them to you know Fantastic Four or Justice League or whatever, you know? Mm. I, th I think the industry changed I mean, because uh, the the level of uh, 
freedom he had in, in, in X-Men, it really couldn't be replicated after 1991, 1992. Mm. Similar times. Similar times. I think, yeah, Peter David wrote a little uh, uh, column about Claremont when it was announced he was leaving X-Men, and he said something about all the writers who write X-Men in the 90s are walking into this dense forest, but Claremont showed up and just kind of watched the forest grow around him. There's just something that can't be duplicated uh, with with coming on, with Claremont coming in in the 70s and over such a long period of time building up such a vast mythology that I think he probably would have loved to do the same thing. Sovereign 7 was kind of an attempt, but... Um, I love the premise, actually. I'm not joking about that. I think the premise sounds cool. I just, I never tried it or really know, knew anything about it, but I, like, I kind of thought it sounded like a cool idea. Yeah, I think it just, uh, maybe it's an attention span thing. I mean, it just, uh, he asked a lot of readers in Sovereign 7. There was a lot of... I think he wanted to, to be X-Men right away, what, what Jay called earlier, that kind of proliferation of characters that happened over time in X-Men. He kind of did yeah, it John right Byrne. Should have got John <laughs> Byrne. <laughs> yeah, I th- I'm sure he would have loved to work with John Byrne on it. He, does, he sort of doesn't hold the grudge against John Byrne that John Byrne holds against Chris Claremont. Byrne seems... Or the world, really. Well, there's the stump incident with Colossus, so the right. tree stump incident was huge. Yeah. Do you not know about that, Hector? That, yeah, I know, but for those oh. who are listening, oh, what, the, uh, what was the Stormgate? So, so uh, writing the Marvel method, uh, with there was no dialogue, and John Byrne broke the plot into 22 glorious pages, and the opening <laughs> page was uh, Colossus clearing uh, a field of unwanted growths <laughs> and, and had wrapped a chain around a tree stump, and he's pulling it, and then in the second page, he rips it free. and uh, Emotion lines indicated... And then body language indicated this. This that is it was a easy. challenge for the great Russian Colossus. Right, and Claremont wrote it as if this was a great challenge, and Colossus said, "Either my either my back will break or this stuff will be ripped free." <laughs> right, and then yeah, he questioned yeah. the sexual virility of Canadians, <laughs> and that was the last straw. He nugged an astray, and he you know stomped out of the game. <laughs> I think Byrne said that every issue there would be a moment he'd be reading and something would really piss him off about something Claremont had written. Stumpgate was page one. And so he thought, you know, if it's happening on page one, I think it's time to call it a day. Screw you guys. I'm going home. <laughs> That's it. Thanks everyone for talking about my favorite writer with me. Thank, thank and you. What's that, what's that one called again, Jason? Oh, no, one last, one last plug of the book. Uh, uh, the best there is at what he does, colon, examining Chris Claremont's X-Men. Written by Jason Powell, available both digitally for Kindle, mm-hmm. $5.99, a very, very affordable, very low price for such a, a masterwork. It's a great book, really. It is. It is a great work. You know, if you're an X-Men fan, I, I, I have to think that it's a must-have. It's a real definitive, detailed look at the entire Chris Claremont run and uh, written in a style that's very conversational and not dry. You know, usually if you think of uh, something that kind of recounts issue by issue a series, think of like these kind of boring, dry synopsises. And it's anything but that. It's uh, just kind of like a trip down memory lane with someone that loves the material just as much as you. So um, I highly recommend it. Me too. It should be a textbook in every school. In every school, in every subject. Yeah. Especially uh, cooking schools. All right. So, so signing off, uh, my name is Jason and... Uh, Let's, uh, shall we sound off, Jay? Am I Jay? Bye, guys. Yes. <laughs> Hanzo? This is Hanzo the Razor, and I'll see you next time on the interweb. <laughs> Hector? Goodbye, and remember, I lost my... I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
I think what the words we were trying to find were the best there is of what he does. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Available now. All right. Okay, on, a, on that time, snappy sorry. ending, on that snappy note, <laughs> let's say goodnight and uh, we'll see you all for uh, Giant Petty Episode 3. Adios. Thank you.